Hi everyone, it's Louise, one of your hosts of the Feminist Book Chat Paris, a podcast that explores the many faces of intersectional feminism through literature. Today I'm talking about Circe by Madeleine Miller with another Madeleine, one half of the Forget the Wine podcast, which is lively discussions of modern literature from two friends living halfway across the world. I first met Maddie at an FBC Paris book club session in December 2019, and we've since connected on social media. Our conversation today came about organically, following an Instagram comment from Maddie when we announced that Circe was to be our May 2020 pick. So, if you couldn't make it to May's virtual book club discussion and are wanting to hear more about wonderful, wonderful Circe, then we've got your back. Unfortunately, we couldn't talk about everything, but we covered as much ground as possible, which is why this is a slightly longer episode than usual. We talk about women being mean to other women, the pettiness of the gods, Circe's acquired agency throughout the book, Circe learning her witchcraft, Penelope and Circe, Cersei's relationships. Enjoy. Hi, Maddie. Thank you so much for um, taking some time to come on the FBC Paris podcast. We're going to have um, a chat about Cersei by Madeleine Miller, uh, which was actually um, our May read for the book club. So we did that um, via Zoom, obviously, because we can't be in Shakespeare and Company right now, sadly. Um, so before we get into book chat, could I ask you just for the listeners uh, to introduce yourself a little bit um, so that they can get a sense of who you are? Yeah, of course. And, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I went to one of the book club meetings in Paris at Shakespeare & Co. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was a, last year, I think, when we read A Woman in Berlin and um, absolutely loved it. <laughs> Yeah, given the topic, it was, you know, a funny one to say that we love, but it, I remember that was a standout yeah. session for me. Yeah, a very powerful, very um, difficult topics, but uh, amazing book. Um, yeah, so I'm Maddie or Madeline. I'm also have a podcast called Forget the Wine, <laughs> Reclaiming the Book Club um, that I host with my friend Laura, where we basically each episode talk about a book as well. Um, and yeah, I'm very excited to be here. I'm an American, but I'm currently in Australia during this um, COVID crisis of 2020 Ooh. and uh, working and living on a macadamia nut farm. Oh, wow. <laughs> what, does, what does that involve exactly? That sounds so far removed from uh, life in Paris. Yes, it's very different from life in Paris. Um, yeah, so I help out with different things around the farm. Uh, most of the harvesting work has been with working on the dehusking machine, sorting through the nuts. Uh, and it's been, I feel very lucky to be somewhere in the nature and having a bit of space. Talking about being in quite a nature environment, my mind completely went to the, the, um, the island, Ayaya that Circe finds herself on um and so maybe let's uh, let's go go straight in and talk about this yeah. wonderful book yes and and I think another correlation is the role of solitude in wow. you know and Absolutely. being alone and how that affects 
Cersei's growth as a character and how important that solitude becomes to, as we'll talk about, to her growth and her um, coming into her powers. Absolutely, because I mean, it's really on the island that, like you said, she comes into her own. She learns her craft. And I think, you know, this idea of the the solitary woman, I mean, she's been cast out, you know, the mm-hmm. her, her, her arrival on the island is punishment. Um, mm-hmm. But it's actually, she manages to turn it. And even though at the beginning, it puts her in quite a vulnerable situation as a woman, alone on an island, she hasn't yet quite kind of figured out her witchcraft. Um, there is obviously that vulnerability to it, but um, she, you know, kind of runs with it. She works hard. I think that was something for me that felt quite mortal um, yes. about Cersei because she's she's constantly kind of bridging the two worlds, isn't she, of mortals and immortals, the gods. Mm-hmm. And, yes, uh, and I think I think part of that bridge is the fact that she has a mortal's voice, yes. even as a deity, and that's a theme that comes up again and again as a point of her character. And also, it's seen by the gods as this point of of weakness. Um, and I really responded to that theme because I think as uh, she was really reckoning with this piece of herself that she couldn't change and she couldn't mm-hmm. alter. Um, and I think a lot, and because of this theme of power comes up so much, this idea that our voices impact how people perceive us and oh, impact oh, how yes. we are, yeah, how we are valued, especially when we're first meeting someone or don't know someone or in a certain role. And yeah. I read this book very soon after I left a job where I was a project manager, and I would often get feedback from my job that my voice, you know, especially when I first started working there, that I needed to alter my voice and be more authoritative with my voice because I have a very feminine, wow. you know, high-pitched um, uh, youth. I, yeah, I, at the time, too, I probably even sounded younger, but I remember that really affected me because for me, it was my, I could take voice lessons. I could work on my confidence, but it's a part of me that I cannot change or alter. And to be told that I, my authority and my agency was being questioned because of this piece of myself, I couldn't change Mm. was very, yeah, it was very, uh, it affected me very deeply. And so when I read that piece of Cersei's character, especially because the theme of power is so strong throughout this book. Yeah. I really resonated with it. And it makes me think of another book, which I think you've also read, uh, called Women in Power by Mary Beard. Yep. Uh, So, (laughs) which for anyone who doesn't know... uh, she Mary Beard is uh, is is British. She's kind of like a she's a little bit like Madeleine Miller in the sense that she's a classicist. Um, mm-hmm. And Women in Power is a nonfiction. It's a very slim book, um, and it's two essays, I believe. And it's so fantastic because it basically goes back in history and charts all the times that like how women were silenced, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because. It's 
kind of linked to what you've just said there about how you were asked to change your voice. That shouldn't be on you. It's for the people who perceive you in that way, I think, to open up their minds. And I feel like Women in Power kind of takes that approach as well. It's about um, breaking down or deconstructing the 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 I mean the the system the power dynamics that are in play and and reconstructing them in a fairer way because like you say you couldn't you can't change your voice Cersei it was going against her from the beginning like it's it's out of your control it's a it's a you lose the fight you know before you even begin absolutely and that's I I absolutely thought of that book too when I was reading this and the proposition that I think Mary Beard made which was that we need to rather than women living up to the traditional idea of what it means to be a powerful person which are mostly masculine traits yeah we need to redefine power and redefine authority but she what I loved about that too is that she didn't give us an answer she didn't tell us how we need to reshape it she just said we we just we need to change it and um that's a everyone should read that book (laughs) I also really it's it really stuck with me yeah and actually Penelope Penelope comes up uh in the first essay I believe because I I think it's something to do with the first the first record of a woman being told to shut up is Penelope Odysseus' wife yes and it's um Telemachus yeah yeah he's the one who's like I'm a man now, mom, you need to be yeah. quiet. And he's Age what, like a 13 year old. It's like, you're a yes. little kid, shut up. <laughs> yes. I, I thought it was really interesting how Miller took their characters um, towards oh. the end of the novel and how she chose to personify, um, give us a, a vision of Penelope because we've seen her come up again in, in different versions of literature of people yeah. interpreting her in different ways. And, um, but I haven't too often seen Telemachus in, in another like fiction, fictional representation of this myth. So I, I, based on reading that in Mary Beard's essays and then seeing the character she made, uh, I thought that was really interesting. Well, I abs- well, let's talk about um, Penelope and Circe then, um, mm-hmm. because I, I know it's kind of something that we, we, we wanted to talk about. And I, I, I agree with you. I, I, and something that I really loved about this because about Circe, um, because I, I've read the Penelope ad by Margaret Atwood. I don't know if you've read mm-hmm. that, but I'd highly recommend. I haven't. <laughs> okay, well, um, it's a very different. Uh, it's very, very different, obviously, to Circe. Um, Penelope is much more kind of savvy, a little bit. Um, She's very sharp, um, mm-hmm. quite cutting. And but it what what that what the Penelope ad does is it basically gives a voice to Penelope, obviously, but also the serving maids, who oh. uh, we know that so they kind of pop up as a chorus line um, to talk about the injustice and what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so having read that, having read you know Women in Power. I, like you, having seen Penelope in a couple of different kind of literary translations, I absolutely loved 
the story that Madeline Miller wrote for Cersei and Penelope because you have these two women who don't take up much of the Odyssey at all. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think Cersei's like reduced to one paragraph. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they get their own story. They come into their own, they get to have their, yeah, have their own version of events, which are obviously just as legitimate as Odysseus's. So why not? <laughs> yeah, and I thought it was interesting how we see, so we see Circe's relationships with women throughout the novel and her relationship with Penelope develops towards the end. Yeah. And we see it as this kind of equalizing relationship where even though Circe is a goddess and Penelope is immortal, they both have this shared experience of being forced to be creative um, in their roles of, as women and as um, having had to submit to the powerful people around them in different ways Mm. they've had to get creative and really learn how to be more crafty with with how they um yeah how they held their agency in the world yeah how they get by yeah yeah yeah. and then whereas towards the beginning of the novel we see uh, one of the themes I saw in your notes was how women being mean to other women so instances where women are pitted against each other and there's a culture um, especially when we see the halls of the gods, uh, how yeah. the, the nymph, <laughs> yeah, yeah. hear your tone. <laughs> yes, how we can see that this there's this learned, there's this dynamic where the women have so little power that they learn to grab anything they can get, which means they have to bring down other women. Right. So they to build themselves up, they have to tear other women down because the men are off limits and we've seen this throughout history as as well um yeah I think that culture is shifting now but I really love to see that progression throughout the novel where we see these kind of this dynamic and then we see uh, an example of a relationship between two women who should be enemies because they both loved the same man Odysseus yeah Oh, Odysseus. <laughs> yeah, oh, Odysseus. Oh, dull, dull Odysseus. Um, yeah, I, I also really loved that. I also feel like, as you say, their relationship, their meeting comes at the end of the novel. So they've both kind of, I mean, Cersei's how, however many centuries old, you know, she's she's gone through mm-hmm. stuff. She's learned from her mistakes. Um, mm-hmm. Penelope too, in her own way. And so I kind of love that they come together and the loom, the weaving, you know, that was something that Odysseus gave to Circe and Circe totally opens that up to Penelope. And absolutely like you, I just loved how these women, and it wasn't gushy, it wasn't cheesy, but they just found a way to live with each other um, and to respect each other and... Yeah, you know, who's Odysseus? Don't need him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought her characterization of Odysseus was really interesting too because he, we see through throughout different, um, we see him in different fictional representations of the Iliad and different mythology and yeah. people have interpreted him in so many ways. But to me, he's always come across as 
kind of a dick, if I can <laughs> use that language on the podcast. He's very, oh, yeah. <laughs> just very classic. Like he, he's very cunning. He's, he's the trickster. He, and he relishes, yeah. yeah, he relishes in, in the way he's able to manipulate. He's a great manipulator. Mm. And so, and, and just, that kind of character, that male manipulator has always made him appear to me like he's not a great guy, <laughs> even though Absolutely. we're seen, he's seen as this hero in, in many other ways. So I thought it was really interesting how Cersei you can see that she is absolutely head over heels, adores him, but she also acknowledges that there's this side of him that he will do anything to, he will torture spies and say that they will live and then murder them he mm. will um and we see later that he orders his son to murder all the servant girls and yeah. he he's very so we see that even though Cersei knows these parts about him she's able to just hold on to this like this sort of affection and love that she has for him so I thought that was really interesting how Cersei responded to his character and morphed his character to meet her needs. Yeah, she was always, I mean, she, she says it, she holds herself back. She doesn't give kind of all of herself to him, right? Yes. So even yes. though we can see that it's a very different um, relationship with, uh, oh my gosh, Hermes? Is it Hermes? Uh, I say Hermes, but... Oh, Hermes, sorry. <laughs> or you can um, say Hermes if you're Hermes, talking about right. the, um, the lovely Hermes label. is a... I mean, he's a, he's a god. He's another god like Cersei. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just, I mean, she knows what she's getting out of that. There's absolutely no kind of feeling, no emotion. He is a terrible... Ter- he is like Odysseus times, you know, a billion. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so we at least kind of see that difference. Like Cersei is, you know, never just kind of like copy and paste. Um, right. So, so yeah, it was a very different relationship with Odysseus. But yeah, she sensed that there was something that she couldn't trust. Um, and then we see something completely different when she meets um, Daedalus in uh, Minas yes. when she visits her sister I'm sorry I think I've got that pronunciation yes. wrong I was I I know you were looking to me to correct you but I cannot remember oh, how no, to pronounce no. his name either Daedalus um, <laughs> maybe um, yeah so I kind of like as well that um, Odysseus wasn't the only man in Cersei's life in this book yes. You know, well, yes, and, and that was actually one thing that I loved to, to talk about. The ending was the fact that she, she has these relationships, but in the end, she finally finds meets this man, Telemachus, as it turns yeah. out, who and the love that they have is really unique in that he listens to her, and I think mm-hmm. that was the big key difference is that she tells him her stories and she tells him she shares herself and the the kind of deeper part of herself that she's always kept hidden 
from the men around her and mm. because she doesn't trust them because she's learned not to trust them. But with right. him, she really does allow herself to be um, to be intimate and close to him. And the difference is that he really listens to her and yeah. sees her. Um, so I, I really loved that in the end. I mean, I guess I, you can say yeah. it's a little bit gushy, but, um, oh, but yeah, I didn't think just... it was executed in that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I think Madeline Miller is very good at kind of just keeping herself from tipping over into... Mm-hmm you know kind of gushy cheesy territory she's very good you know at at kind of keeping a lid on that and I agree I think that Circe was most vulnerable with Telemachus um again it's a relationship that's coming out of at the end of the novel so you know the whole thing for me throughout this book is Circe learning from her mistakes, Circe Mm -hmm. learning who she wants to actually be because she says at one point and I'm really paraphrasing here um, that you know she was kind of poured into this mold that she didn't Mm -hmm. actually fit in and that she didn't want to be in so it's about breaking out of the mold and becoming her own person and so Telemachus I feel like she's almost allowing herself to have this relationship with him because of her past experience and to the extent that you know she she makes a pretty big decision which I you know I don't want us to spoil for people who perhaps haven't read the book but um the ending I mean I just Mm -hmm. I loved it I loved it yes I think it was I loved that line towards it's not the final one but towards the very end where she says this is what it means to be alive that it yeah it was a very beautiful and um reflective ending to a pretty if you look at a very character driven plot driven novel I thought there was about a pretty strong balance of both character and plot and it really it moved along there were there were there were introspections and we can see how Cersei grows as a character throughout, but it's not a very, um, it's not a very slow or inner world novel. She's interacting with characters and different myths and different stories all throughout. So I, I thought the ending then was really, it stood out even more strongly Mm. in that way. Yes. You're so uh, right. And that came up ab- about the kind of uh, the action, like it's it's pretty fast paced. Like we spoke about this during our book club chat, you know, a lot of us really enjoyed how Madeline Miller had written Cersei into um, or interpreted, you know, Cersei being present at certain mm-hmm. well-known um mythological stories so for example yeah. helping her sister Pasiphae uh, give birth uh, to who everyone knows as the Minotaur um mm-hmm. absolutely uh, loved that kind of crossover and that kind of writing Circe into you know as w- when yes. she'd been left out previously or just reduced to like 12 lines <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's part of what made this novel such a pleasure to read was that the Greek myth, it's its almost an escapist 
work in that way where you're really pulled into this ancient, this Greek mythology and you can escape from from everything and and just let yourself fall into these inter- and she weaves in these different stories so well it doesn't yes. ever feel forced or over the no. top like how did Cersei get in- yeah, involved right. in all these different the golden fleece and and right. the the month and um Scylla the the monster and I I thought she did it without being forced or cheesy or right. um not staying true to her character um so that, right. that's what it makes it so fun yeah. definitely Cersei has to be places she has to be you know she's doing things she's got people to see things to do spells to you know spells to cast, <laughs> spells to cast. um so yeah we touched upon um you know the halls of the gods which we see uh a lot at the beginning and women kind of being mean to other women, which again, for me, the main, that happens mainly around the gods. So before Cersei is kind of punished and and sent to the island. So, I, I mean, you know, facts are facts. Cersei was disregarded from birth because of where she fell basically in the power structure so she's uh, her mother is a nymph so like the nymphs were the kind of on the last rung of the ladder should we say um yes. she's also got this uh, mortal voice which uh you know literally from like the first week of her birth it's something that her mother's sisters or her aunts uh, notice upon and that it's used to kind of silence and shame her from a very early age um, and she also doesn't kind of have any noticeable powers and and one kind of feminine agency that she is lacking is beauty mm-hmm. so unlike her sister Pasiphae unlike uh, Sila unlike a lot of unlike a lot of the women surrounding her she has even less agency so to speak than them because she's not considered beautiful yes and there was there was a moment where I believe it's her brother who notes um oh I yeah I found the quote here what would an ugly nymph do in our halls what is the worth of her life Mm. um and so he's pointing out that they're even beautiful nymphs are mostly useless an ugly one would be nothing less than nothing yeah so we see from the beginning how the women and and the goddesses goddesses in this story and the nymphs in this story are are valued immediately based on their appearance and that their worth that their beauty will bring yeah which is why Cersei knows where to hit Sela the hardest right Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. completely aesthetic she turns her into the ugliest scariest monster yes and then she I think that also shows then her reaction to Scylla and the fact that Scylla then becomes a monster who eats the sailors um, who pass through Mm -hmm. her waters Cersei holds on to this guilt and that is another element that 
I think dif- differentiates her from all of the other gods in the story is that she cares about the mortals around yeah. her. And the, like the gods are, are always saying, oh, you know how the gods love their monsters and they they want they don't want the humans the mortals to be happy because happy people leave less offerings they, exactly they don't need the gods yeah. they don't right yeah yeah mm-hmm. so Absolutely. so and so i loved this image that miller cites a few times cersei observes it was like a great chain of fear so how the the, the olympians the titans the nymphs, the gods, all trickle down through this this fear, and the only thing that provokes this fear is power and right. submission, and right. um, this this dominating this sort of domination that overarches all of the Greek culture. Yeah, um, and then but Circe, what makes her unique is that she always she doesn't want this power over other people the only power that she seeks is the power to, to make her own way and to have her own life and make her own, her, have her own way of living. And that's the only power that we see her seek and we see her grow into. But when she, when anyone kneels to her or submits to her, she rejects it. Well, absolutely. Because she says herself, I think it's about halfway through she says, you know, there was something in me that was sick of fear and awe, of gazing at the heavens mm-hmm. and wondering what someone would allow me. So, of course, mm-hmm. if she doesn't like the power that the gods have over her, she also doesn't want to make the mortals fear her. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think that's, that's, you know, showing that thoughtfulness to Cersei that she really kind of creates her own rules and and lives by them and she's not a hypocrite it's something else that differentiates herself from you know the other immortals who are just obsessed with power like we've touched upon uh it's a constant power play even the um chosen destination of um Cersei's kind of banishment um, there's history between uh, Zeus and Circe's father, Helios, like this, something kind of quite important, I think, happened on the island. And it's actually infused with lots of magical power, luckily for Circe, um, because <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's got the kind of blood of spilled blood of gods. So she's constantly watching, you know, these petty gods throw their power around, use their power to gain more power or to mm-hmm. shut kind of people up. I mean, when, when Cersei goes to her father, Helios, and explains what she did, that she used witchcraft, and he's just like, no, 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 no. Like, this is not a thing. What are you talking about? And then her brother flies in, Aetis, I think, the brother that she was closest to as a young girl, who just, you know, left her without taking who, a second glance. Who actually uh, hates women. <laughs> who totally hates women. Um, and he turns up and he's like, no, Dad, actually, it is a thing. I do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it's it's just that whole mansplaining as well and she's yes. I mean she's just constantly watching this power show um go down 
Yeah. And I, this, I love, I love that you bring up the, the mansplaining because it's true. And I think that there was another element in your notes, how that women in the story are always making themselves smaller for the men. Mm-hmm. And I think this, this, this goes with both the mortals and the gods, um, yes. like with, with Jason and Medea, her myth is that she murders her children, which was, you know, seeing her come up in the story was, I was curious to see how her character would come across. Um, but so she's but, the daughter of Cersei's brother, Aetis, who we just talked about, right? Yes, yeah. yes. So she's a demigoddess. So she's okay. half, I think she's a half, half god, half mortal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Jason is a mortal. Um, he is a just a man, and just Cersei. But <laughs> another hero like Odysseus, right? <laughs> right, right. He got the golden fleece. So, <laughs> yeah, but but he could only do it with Medea's help, and right. Cersei observes that um, he doesn't thank her as if a demigoddess saving him at every turn was his only due. Yeah, so it's like burn. Yeah, that I yeah. just loved those. <laughs> <laughs> those yeah. observations that we see about the dynamics between um, in those relationships, uh, especially when we're meeting other, like you were saying, that's the really interesting part of the book is weaving in these different myths yeah. and different figures from the myths throughout. One relationship within Cersei that I would potentially like to see a, a whole book on is mm-hmm. Pacifae and Cersei. Because, yes. like, wow, Pasiphae is kind of conventionally, well, we, I have the impression, she's kind of, like, conventionally pretty. So she kind of gets by, you know, in the Hall of the Gods, but obviously she's still kind of shipped off, married off um, mm-hmm. to someone, who, and it turns out to be Minus, who is basically, you know, like, businessman, <laughs> Uh, yes. He's basically a businessman, <laughs> um, and so yeah. So Pasiphae asks Cersei to assist her at childbirth, knowing full well the route that Cersei has to take. Passes by Scylla, the sea monster, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then she gets Cersei gets there and just kind of watches this really toxic relationship between Minus and Pasiphae. She kind of Pasiphae reveals um, what it was really like in the Hall of the Gods. Like it seems like she had to do some pretty, you know, horrible stuff just to get by. Um, yes. And of course, what has this turned her into as an adult woman? Um, you know, someone who, again, is mean to other women because she casts a spell. That means, you know, when Minus sleeps with, when her husband Minus sleeps with um, the serving girls, um, they they die when he inserts himself into them. So mm-hmm. just twi- so twisted, like all these power dynamics and kind of the monsters that it goes on to create. Um, mm-hmm. And Pasiphae and Cersei, I mean, yeah, I want a book. I thought... I, I agree because that sisterhood is a very, 
I, I think the relationship between sisters is a very interesting thing to explore. And I, I don't have a sister. I have three brothers. So I've never oh. experienced that, that relationship. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but um, I always wanted a sister. But then I see people around me, like my close friends who have sisters, um, especially more than one and or even twins. And there's this, oh, it's such a complex layered relationship mm-hmm. because on one side there's this deep deep probably unspeakable bond that is there but on this other side there's this this underlying competition that I often yeah. see between sisters I don't mm. know if you have a sister <laughs> I do have a sister and like what you're saying rings absolutely true there is this kind of burning loyalty but then on mm-hmm. the other hand, there's the kind of just normal dynamics that you could have with any anybody uh, or mm-hmm. even within female friendships um, yes. kind of competitiveness or the petty kind of insecurities or jealousies. Yes. Yeah. The, the sibling rivalry or. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think for sis and you see it with boys too between brothers and um and between sisters and brothers of course but I feel like it's a special kind of of rivalry between sisters at times that and it's different in every family but I I thought but so there's that element of sisterhood that's really interesting between the two the two nymphs and then um but um we we see Pasiphae she is so desperate to be seen and to be acknowledged that she gives birth to a monster just because she wants to be like you said, she's fed into that very toxic culture and she um, just, yeah, for for whatever reason. Yeah. Like make a name for herself. Right. Like go down in history, have a legacy. Mm -hmm. Um. Mm -hmm. And the only way she kind of knows how to do that is perhaps not the not the healthiest or the nicest way. <laughs> I was gonna say that. I'm not gonna dump on Pasiphae. Like she had it tough. Um, but she is clearly in contrast with Cersei. Cersei removed herself from that kind of toxic mm-hmm. mess, shall we say. Yes. And so you get to see the contrast because Pasiphae stayed in it and she's very much playing the game. Yes, and very that much so. The relationship actually takes on a much nicer, healthier uh, look and feel between Penelope and Cersei, even though, you know, there's no kind of blood relationship. It's one of the few healthy kind of examples of, of female friendship or sisterhood um, yeah. in the book. Yes, and I think part of what bonded them was their their motherhood their their identities as mothers um because we see this foursome on the on the island eventually of of Cersei and Penelope and their two sons and they share this trait where they will base they will do anything to protect their sons and I think that is another element that really binds them and that Miller writes very intentionally into the novel especially when Cersei goes to retrieve that poisoned tail from the ancient god. She's only able to do that because of the love for her son. 
And uh, I think she made it very clear that even Aetes couldn't, with all of his sorcery, couldn't get the tail because he wasn't willing to sacrifice himself in the way that Circe was. And there is a great strength yeah, yeah. that comes in that. Absolutely. Well, yeah, because Aetes, actually, that was a really great scene in the book when Circe kind of goes uh, under the, under the sea. Um, mm-hmm. to retrieve that and that whole conversation it definitely shows the kind of strength coming from what some could consider vulnerable vulnerability or weakness mm-hmm. um, and in fact a- Aetes um, turns up just after Medea and Jason have visited Circe or have passed by her island and you can see his attitude towards his children very clearly. I mean, it's very short, you know, but he basically <laughs> screams at Circe for not having kept Medea on the island so that he could kind of, you know, take her back and serve the punishment that he thinks she deserves. Um, so he clearly thinks, you know, family members included, that everything is owed to him. He expects mm-hmm. Circe to 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 show loyalty to him to keep Medea for him mm-hmm. and when mm-hmm. she doesn't do that because Medea also has her own agency he's she's absolutely furious yes. you know yeah and I think there was I, Miller did a great job writing in these these male characters and their inability to see the world past themselves I love the line that she writes in about Helios towards the end. Uh, he was a harp with only one string, and the note it played was himself. I thought it said it so perfectly. <sighs> it was so good. Like, it just hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, she also... I think it's around... It's It's the same scene where you know Helios has all these great nicknames not great but like they they make him sound so great you know he's the great watchman of the sky he's the savior he's the all-seeing but he's a terrible person he is a terrible father you know and (laughs) this is when Circe sees him very clearly for what he is so she makes that comment you know about he's just a one he plays the same note every time Mm. like you know, she she knows what he's going to say. He always says the same stuff. And this yes. is when, and this is what was really great to read, particularly during confinement, um, <laughs> particularly like to have the discussion in book club about this. This is where Cersei stands up to her dad. And when he says to her, you've always been like my least favorite child or like my most kind of troublesome child. She's just like, boom, dad. Um, I don't care anymore. Get me off this island. Do what you got to do. And, you know, don't bother counting me as one of your children. I don't care. <laughs> and I think mm, it I was just like, yes, go Cersei. And it felt like yes. a win almost for feminism, yes. intellectual feminism, for women. <laughs> you know, it was just kind yes. of like, yes. Yes, and I think it's. I think that win feels all the more strongly because the first time I read the book, I remember thinking Helios is personified as this this character, this entity that cannot be beaten because he is mm-hmm. the sun god. He will burn right. her alive. They're so right. 
he is the most powerful of anyone that Cersei comes into contact with. And so there's this sense throughout the book. I remember the first time I read it thinking, how is she going to break away from her father? Is that even going to be an element? And to see her find a way to do that, it made it, it, I think it was very symbolic, I guess, of like you were saying, it, it gives you this deeper, deeper sense of, it's greater than just her standing up to her dad. It's, mm. um, it's seeing it that this structure, this system can be, it seems so powerful and so impossible to overcome. Yeah. But it, it's possible. It's possible. We need to find yeah. a way. And Absolutely. without sacrificing our own, our own qualities that make us compassionate, that make yeah. us empathetic that make us care about other people we can still find a way to hold power without sacrificing these important parts of ourselves and that's I think what what also left me with that really good feeling after reading this novel yes and I saw something in your notes that I would add to this point that we're making right now which is Cersei didn't have to have a big fall at the end. She didn't have to be shamed. Like she could see her agency, she could own it, and she could still get the happy ending that she wanted. And I think that was also incredible because Mm -hmm. there is so much violence against women who stand up against the the patriarchy, who stand up to power, who... Mm -hmm try and grow into their own form of power and I thought when I saw that in your notes it wasn't something that I had necessarily thought of but it was I I was just like yes wow how nice that she doesn't have to be you know taught a lesson because she stepped out of place basically Yes, and we see the compelling part of her character is is through her from the beginning we can see her her kind of her her character flaws and how but how she grows with them and around them and overcomes mm. them and learns and that journey was so imp- uh, yeah, it, it was important to watch, I think, even though you're reading it through the journey of a goddess and all right. of these Greek myths are interwoven. And that's what makes it really pleasurable and moves the plot forward. But then the development of her character paired with those things um, was was really, yeah, really balanced and masterful. And I think that's what also added to that culmination of the strength of that ending yes but I think that she also did something really good for witchcraft um you know which I mean we know over the past couple of years um witchiness witchcraft it's it's definitely kind of been reappropriated to have a more Mm. positive feminist kind of ownership um but certainly at Cersei's time I mean I do believe Uh, I listened to a podcast, I think it was the Shakespeare and Co podcast um, recording actually with Madeline Miller when she came to the shop. And I think she says that, you know, Cersei is one of the first kind of recorded um, women who was kind of referred to as as a witch. And we've 
we see very clearly during the book, like there are a lot of witchy elements, especially when she gets into the island and comes into her own, you know, like all her animal familiars. Uh, She carries a staff, obviously all her wonderful herbs and potions. Like Cersei can be a positive image of what a witch is, you know. Yes, I think, well, and there's so many, so many both fiction and nonfiction pieces about the history of witchcraft that I've been meaning to pick up and read because Same. we see it as a constant throughout history that yeah. that witchcraft was used as a way to pull women down who had started to reach any sort of agency or power in their society. Right. They would right. be accused of a witch and then that would be the excuse to come in and be controlled. And that's something yeah that's reoccurs in different cultures across history where this idea of a of a power if a woman is powerful there must be some supernatural insidious element attached to it this darkness attached to it because a woman cannot be powerful without essentially like in many cases satan behind her this this uh, very dark dark thing and um so I think Cersei then when we see her as a witch we can see how in this novel it's not it's her the way that she's able to gain the agency when learning all of her skills and crafts because she wasn't very powerful in her roles as a goddess um but then so she Yes, I, I thought it was really powerful how that witchcraft was used positively and then, yeah, never broken down or never led to her downfall in this, um, in the way that witchcraft has been used negatively against women throughout history. Yeah, and also, I mean, we even see it, you know, from Medea and from uh, kind of the young apprentice, the young female apprentices who are sent to Circe. Um, again, it seems to be some form of punishment for them, but they're kind of sent to help her out, you know, with bits yes. and bobs on the island. And we see through <laughs> them as well, particularly as young women that or younger than, than Cersei, um, that, you know, they, they kind of see her as lonely, as pathetic, as sad. Um, and and she's not she's so not you know which I thought was another kind of great statement um that that Madeline Miller made she even offers when Medea comes to the island Cersei has this premonition that she's going to be shunned by Jason's kingdom yeah she even says you should stay here on this island and be a witch with unbound power who need answer to none but herself yeah great opportunity yes (laughs) yes to have this this, so you won't be misjudged by the society and and suspect you know suspected and under this cast of of suspicion and Medea's response was to say like you a pathetic exile who stinks of her loneliness (laughs) so you can see right there it she doesn't view it as um as a as an opportunity at all she Mm -hmm. just sees that lonely the sad lonely woman yeah I read this novel twice now which I rarely do anymore because there's so many books to read but in preparation for this podcast I read it again and it was just as enjoyable a second time I I think the the craftsmanship and the voice and the themes all and I love Greek mythology so all those elements made it a really 
wonderful book to read. And um, it's real, like you said, in this time, in this moment, it's wonderful to read something that ends on an uplifting note, that yeah. ends on a, a note of strength and power, because it's so easy to get overwhelmed and and to feel as if um, the world is is crashing down around us a little in mm. some ways. And um, to read a novel that allows you to reminds you of some of these important themes um, and ends on an on a high note was uh, really lovely to come back to. I would just add to that that this was also my second time reading it for book club. I read it, mm. I think, last year. Um, I absolutely loved it again the second time round. It's incredibly rich. So there were definitely things that, you know, I hadn't picked up on my first reading that I picked up on this time. Um, and yeah, I think what you've just said there as well, Maddie, um, it is a struggle. It is a struggle. Um, we know that today more than ever, I think, with the, the conversations that are happening around the world in regards to anti-racist work. Um, and, you know, I mean, intersectional feminism, the, the struggle is real. Um, mm-hmm. But to, you know, but if we're burnt out, if we're feeling overwhelmed, what, what good are we to ourselves? What good are we to the cause? So I think this book, like you said, was a really good uh, reminder that it's like, well, yeah, there's work to do. Um, but there were results, there were results to get, yes. you know, and you can, yes. and you can be a nice person, you can make mistakes, you can, yeah, mess things up, but you will get there. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. it's the, it's the long-term vision, isn't it, isn't it, as opposed to like a short-term kind of win. Yeah, and it, it sounds corny, but the, you can stay true to yourself and true to, <laughs> yeah. to who you are without and still make a positive difference in the world for sure thank you so much for listening to today's episode we hope you enjoyed it do feel free to leave us some feedback or a review on itunes head to the show notes where you'll find the link to maddie's forget the wine podcast well worth checking out as well as all the books referenced during our discussion and of course some further witchy reading recommendations. I'll be back next week chatting to Lindsay Tremuta about her exciting new book called The New Parisienne. Bye!